0: Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Dr. Williams is the author of the acclaimed book, Shattered by the Darkness, Putting the Pieces Back Together After Child Abuse. Dr. Williams is on the Senior Leadership Team at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And Dr. Williams travels the United States speaking and training professionals, parents and victims about the importance of dealing with abuse and personal trauma head-on and not being afraid to break the silence of your own personal pain. Feel free to call in to tonight's show at 888-627-6008 and speak with Dr. Williams and his guests live on air. And now, your host, Dr. Williams.
1: Well, good evening. Welcome to Breaking the Silence. My name is Greg Williams and welcome to my home here uh, at the tower of where I live, which is right across the way from the Texas Medical Center. I was just looking out the window, getting a little bit of rain. I work on the 10th floor, just about that building right there uh, at the Pavilion for Women at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital. And uh, I work there as often as I can, about 50 hours a week, uh, at least 50. But I uh, just want to welcome you to the show tonight. looks like we're getting a little bit of rain here, kind of on the cooler side. Uh, hopefully, uh, our guest tonight is in a little warmer climate than what we are right now. But I've uh, been traveling this week, went to uh, – had a uh, San Antonio uh, conference I'll be traveling this coming week to College Station, Bryan, and Texarkana, and I'll uh, be speaking on abuse and, and uh, how to discover abuse and how to deal with abuse in children. Uh, also, uh, human trafficking, education for the medical field, and uh, several other topics that I'll be speaking on this week. Uh, we want you to get involved tonight. Uh, there's two or three different ways you can do that. Uh, you can get right on the uh, Shattered by the Darkness Facebook page right now that my awesome son, that is in the United States Army, Curtis, uh, is running right now for, for me in Seattle. And I guess this week he is heading to uh, the wonderful country of Japan to spend a month over there uh, doing some work and a project over there with the Army. And while I'm speaking of the Army, I want to say thank you to all the veterans on this Veterans Day weekend and the sacrifice the service, the uh, dedication, the courage that it takes for you to uh, serve, protect, and make our country free, what it is. And uh, even though sometimes our freedom causes some people to do and say some crazy things, my son, Curtis, tells me all the time, Dad, that's the reason I uh, am still in the Army, to make sure that everybody can have the freedom to share what they have on their mind in a free uh, society. So uh, he has a little bit more open mind than I do. I, I want some of those people to stop talking. But anyway, I'm, I'm just teasing. But anyway, it's, it's I wanna say thank you to all the veterans and all the years that they've served all the men and, and the awesome women. Also, you can, Call me, 832-396-6525, or text me. You're better, you better off texting me during the program. If you have a question, I'll read it during the commercial break and read it for you on the air. Or you can call the wonderful people of the BBS radio station, and that is 888-627-6008. Well, they'll tap you right into the program, and you can talk live with me and our guest tonight, Uh, And you'll be on the radio right along with us live uh, completely around the world. Um, We have good uh, attendance tonight, a lot of people watching and listening in. So I'm looking forward to this program. And this is going to be one of those uh, that you're going to want to get a piece of paper, a pen or pencil, and write down some things because our doctor has years and years of experience on a topic that has been uh, misdiagnosed mishandled for years, and she's going to have some great insight uh, on on this topic this evening. As we're talking about Veterans Day, I always like to just share just a minute or two, and this won't take long, I promise tonight, about courage. Uh, What do you do when everything goes wrong in your life? Goes wrong in your world, goes wrong in a project, goes wrong in a relationship, goes wrong in an investment. Just when, you know, how do you end up being able to tap back in to strength and courage when everything seems to go wrong in your life? And I got a couple of things that I want you to remember. Um, this happens to me uh, more times than not. And I had to remember these things. And I'm going to give you some things I I think would be wise for you to do and a few things to be wise not to do. But you need to remember, first of all, that everything is temporary. Even as I look out the window and it's raining here in Houston uh, at the medical center, that rain, that storm, that trial, that time, that darkness is going to end up stopping. It has always stopped raining. This darkness is going to stop uh, in about nine hours, 10 hours when the sun starts coming up. The rain is eventually going to stop. So whatever's going wrong in your life right now, just realize that it's only temporary and have the courage and strength to just hang on for the ride. Uh, You get the opportunity to choose exactly how you're going to react in the situation that you're in right now. You get the choice. And sometimes that choice makes or breaks how you react to the problem. Um, Because I wanna let you know, especially in my life, and I know it's true in yours too, bad times don't define you. But your approach and reaction to the bad times sure reveals your character, and a little depth and heart of who you really are. But the bad times don't define us because everybody experiences them. I hate to break your bubble, but it's called life. Life happens every single day to all of us. And it's usually when we're whistling Dixie and we're thinking everything's just great, fun, going absolutely perfect our way, then all of a sudden, boom, out of nowhere, something goes wrong The bottom drops out and we're blindsided. I also want you to remember that you don't have to do it alone. Look for those people that are in your corner, the people that will cheer you on, not the naysayers, That there's always some at the office. There's always somebody in that inner circle of yours that will always try to say all the bad things. But the people that cheer you on, that can encourage you, don't try to handle this alone. And I want to let you know that you have the resilience inside of you to endure tough times. Resilience isn't something that you have to go learn to get. It's inside. All you have to do is keep drilling down until you tap into it. You have the strength inside of you for that resilience. A couple things I want you to do, keep taking steps, three steps forward, two steps back is still one step of progress. So always try to take a step, keep moving, don't stand still, and take it one day at a time. I don't try to figure out what it's going to be like at the end of the year. There's days that I literally have to take it one day at a time. There could be days that you have to take it one hour at a time because those little bitty chunks, sometimes it seems like I'm not going to get through the next hour. There's times that I'm sleeping in that chair right there that I don't wonder if I'm going to make it through the night with what my mind is going through and some of those thoughts and those nightmares that I still have from being hurt and traumatized as a child. Also try to look for the lessons. What can you learn during this trial to get that courage? What can you learn? What lesson can be discovered in that? Also, give it a test of time. Is this really going to matter five or 10 years from now? Is it going to matter next week? Is it just a temporary inconvenience? Or is it really something that that you really need to buckle down and, and work through? Sometimes it's just a preference. And it's not a major life event. So give it the test of time. And then always try to fill your tank, your emotional tank, with something positive. We have so much negative junk going on TV. Negative junk that's being hammered here through Facebook and LinkedIn and and the media and all that stuff. Try to fill your your, your mind and your spirit and your soul with positivity. And then every now and then, you need to remember to take a step back and breathe. Just regroup, reestablish your position. Quickly, things you don't want to do. Don't panic. Don't blame. Don't criticize. Don't ignore. And this is huge, parents, and I think the doctor uh be interested in what she thinks of this, but don't ignore your intuition. I think that inner alarm inside of parents, inside of people, and especially inside of women should never be ignored. Trust and don't ignore your intuition. And don't try to control what is completely Out of your control. Got a a quote here as I close from John Wayne. He says, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. Courage doesn't mean you aren't afraid. Courage just means that you're not going to let it stop you. Try to reach down no matter what. If you have somebody that needs this wisdom this week, use it. Encourage them. Be the cheerleader. Fill them with positivity and tell them they can do it, keep on, keep it on, and you have that strength inside of you to get through what you're going through right now, I promise you, and you're not alone. And there's always, like we end the program, and we're going to end it like this tonight too, there's always, always hope. Never give up on that. Tonight, I am literally honored. Have Dr. Connie McReynolds. She is a licensed psychologist and a certified rehabilitation counselor, and she has more years than many people have in their life in the career. Now, I'm not saying she's old, but she's got over 30 years of experience in the field of rehabilitation counseling and in psychology. She's the founder of a neurofeedback. Clinic that I want to drill down deep into that. Neurofeedback is huge. In Southern California, I, I hope I get to meet her sometime because I'm in California all the time, working with children and adults to reduce and eliminate the conditions of something that I personally believe that has been overdiagnosed time after time after time, ADHD anxiety, anger, depression, chronic pain, learning problems, and trauma, and this is the book that you want to write the title down, Solving the ADHD Riddle. It's my privilege tonight to welcome to you, to our program, Dr. Connie McReynolds. Doctor, can you hear me this evening?
2: I can. Thank you. Well,
1: well good evening. And where are you located right now? What, what city are you in?
2: I actually live in Redlands, California. It's halfway between LA and Palm Desert. (laughs) So we're having nice weather. It's a beautiful fall day today in the 70s and crystal clear skies. So it's why we live here.
1: (laughs) Fantastic. I was supposed to be right out there uh, in the Los Angeles area a couple weeks ago and ended up having to count. I was supposed to uh, speak at the uh, counseling, uh, the CCAP conference. Uh, that was happening on the outskirts of L.A. a couple of weeks ago, and I I had COVID and I had to oh. cancel out. Thank you for being on the program tonight. Uh, well, tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, uh, why you thought it was important to write a book, and is there books out there that looks at it from your set of eyes? Just tell me what, what brought this all upon
2: Well, a little bit of a long story, I'll give you the brief thumbnail sketch of it. So as you had mentioned, I have been in the field for 30 years and a lot of that has been in the rehab field and the kind of the crux of all all of rehabilitation counseling and rehab psychology is you may have a diagnosis, but you really have to know the person. And so figure out who the person is and figure out what's happening in their life because it's unique for every single person. And so that has really been the tenets and the operating process that I've taken my entire career and really was the foundation for what I started discovering about 15 years ago when I built this clinic out here, the first one. And uh, parents were showing up and and things just weren't weren't jiving with diagnoses and interventions weren't working and medications weren't working and people were struggling and things just weren't getting better. And it really was the process of just uncovering uh, what I really did end up writing about in the book. And the book is written because I felt like it was so important for people to understand the deeper issues that are really going on far beyond this label of ADHD. Uh, Children come into my clinics diagnosed with a whole host of conditions. That can be developmental disorders, cognitive problems, learning disabilities. They get diagnosed with autism, intermittent explosive disorder, an oppositional defiant disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. The list just goes on. But the problem is that the interventions weren't making any difference for a lot of these children, the ones that were showing up in my clinics, at least. And so that was a curiosity It's like, well, if all of these diagnoses aren't yielding any kind of an outcome, that's a lasting outcome, what's going on? And so really, that was the foundation. It was my curiosity. It was really trying to figure this out and studying it for a long time, because I really felt like, oh, for sure, there has to be something out here. And before I published my first article in 2018 on this in an international journal, I spent two years digging through the literature to see if there wasn't something else out there. There had to be something out there. I just... I was just baffled that no one else was writing about this. They were writing about different types of brain conditions, but no one was writing about this, which is auditory and visual processing problems. And that really became the crux of the book. And I'll hold it up so people can actually see the title of it, which is solving the ADHD riddle. And it's really about finding the root cause and then identifying the lasting solutions that parents and teachers need in order to be able to really help these children.
1: Do being a parent of three boys and one of those I remember taking to a psychiatrist when he was probably seven or eight and within 15 minutes being in the doctor's office, he was writing on his prescription pad, take Ritalin and handed it to me and didn't even hardly talk to us or the child. Do you find that that has been that ADHD has been overly diagnosed and in so wrong and highly medicated when there could be some other reason that they have these kind of uh, reactions and behaviors within them?
2: Well, it's the crux of my work of the last fifteen years. Once I started stumbling onto this and really realized that I think I had found something. which is, yes, ADHD is overdiagnosed, it's overprescribed. And I think I even wrote somewhere in the book, the the wrong diagnosis isn't going to lead to the right intervention. If you don't get it right, the interventions aren't going to get it right. And that's been, I think, a lot of the challenge for a lot of parents. And still to this day, I'm hearing parents say, you know, we went in and spent 10 minutes with the doctor and ask a few questions. And then we have a prescription for this, you know, almost methamphetamine. I'd be careful with that because it's not that, but parents describe it as what they feel like it is. And so it's their perception really of kind of what some of these medications are for their children. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't work for some children because it does. It can help get rid of some of the behaviors or the symptoms. So the behaviors are the symptoms, the symptoms are the behaviors. But it's been my theory uh, with this that we are kind of getting rid of the wrong thing. We're we're chasing the wrong thing. We're chasing symptoms instead of really trying to understand what is actually going on. You can chase symptoms all day long and you can, you know, write all kinds of prescriptions and all kinds of behavioral interventions to try and get rid of the behaviors, but instead, if we were to slow down just a bit and use these behaviors as trying to understand or perhaps decode, what is this child really trying to communicate? Because I think the behaviors are a form of communication. And I think if we as adults can get sharp enough at being able to decode what these behaviors are actually trying to tell us then we have information that we maybe are missing. So if we're only going after putting the Band-Aid on the wound and not really understanding that there's something very different going on here, we miss all this information. And then you stop the medication, and the behaviors come back in most cases.
1: Well, I remember my son, for about a year and a half, was almost a zombie. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, it took him from here to here, and he just – is like we, we can't be doing this 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 can't be good for him mm-hmm. and we eventually uh, got him off it mm-hmm. it just seems like it it drugged him and there was no energy in him whatsoever and the only reason i think we took him was because he had an enormous amount of energy what 7 8 year old doesn't mm-hmm. um you know that's what childhood's all about mm-hmm. you have a personal uh Reason that you you started digging into this and studying this but uh, what what caused your interest to to lean into this part of uh, psychology?
2: Well, in the book, I uh, start off the story talking a little bit about my mother and a story that as I was writing the book surfaced that I really hadn't thought about for a very long time, but one day it just popped in and I remembered this little boy that she had worked with. so my mother, taught second grade for 32 years in a very small town in rural southeast Kansas and I kind of joke that I grew up in second grade (laughs) because uh, you know I was I was part and parcel to a lot of what was going on Uh, you know at the grading the papers and and all the things that happen with teachers and politics and uh, and the like and so there was this one little boy Um, who couldn't read and it didn't matter what she was doing he couldn't read he couldn't learn how to read in second grade and she really became very concerned about him and contacted a university that was about 45 miles away It it was a teaching university and so she contacted them and I was with her all summer long when we were driving up to that university where they did some assessments at that time. And it was one of the first cases that she'd ever heard of, of something called dyslexia at that time. So it wasn't well known even, but they had some approaches that they could use to help him learn how to read. And so as I was writing this book and I was kind of thinking back all over everything over the many years. And uh, as I said, she taught for 32 years. I had an aunt who was a dean of a college of education, an uncle who was a professor, I myself became a professor for 25 years, and um, I think it was just that sense of her creativity. But she was also quite innovative. Uh, she decided one year to that second graders should learn how to type, so she has got donations of typewriters and put them in her second grade classroom so that those little children could learn how to type because she knew where the she knew where the future was going, and so it was just kind of this. Um, You know, I saw her do all kinds of things around the farm. I grew up on a farm and, you know, she was just a lot, (laughs) she was involved in a lot of different things and could tackle a lot. And I think that just was this independent piece that came along and it was the thinking outside the box. Always been kind of that way. I've never been much of what one might call a traditionalist. Uh, I think that's why I was gravitating toward rehab counseling because it had a more of an innovative approach. Uh, To working with individuals and really understanding the individual. And then, when I was uh, recruited out to that university here in Southern California, part of the task was we moved into this beautiful new building and there was a huge space, and they needed someone to put an institute in it. So, they brought me out and I built an institute, and it evolved out of that institute. Just one thing led to another and just over the course of time it evolved and i started realizing i think we have something here and just kept looking for the literature looking for books looking for anyone who was writing on this and no one had at that time and really that's how it all just it just unfolded in front of me just as you were saying one step at a time that's really what this was it was just taking the next step it was listening it was paying attention it was kind of queuing in to things. And it was really being curious as to why things weren't working and trying to figure out, well, what can we do to maybe help people? And when we finally found this approach, the assessment gives us amazing data, and then the interventions are all non-invasive. And so we actually are able to teach children how to use their brain more effectively and more efficiently. And then when we do that, surprisingly, most of those behaviors go away. And that's the beauty of all of it.
1: You know, one thing that I was really impressed with because uh, I read all the guest books every week um, is that a lot of doctors will write so technically and medically and uh, expertly above my head to where I can't understand it. You're writing was exactly the way i think because it, it was easily understood it was broke down in such a way that it was applicable it wasn't so complicated that i had to look up on google what's that word mean or whatever it was just really user friendly who is the main audience is it parents are you trying to get uh, the medical field to look at this uh closer uh schools What was when you started writing this and was it a deliberate approach in the way that you wrote uh, this awesomely uh, designed book?
2: Oh, well, thank you so much. Yes, it was very deliberate Anyhow, how I wrote it. I had written for 25 years in the academic world. And, you know, you have a certain language of vernacular with that. And. That never worked when I was meeting with parents, and I knew that from the get-go. I came up as a counselor. I didn't come up as a professor. I came up through counseling first and foremost, which is you have to figure out how to connect with the person you're with so that they can grow and evolve and do what is for them to do, and that's up to the counselor to figure out that pathway to make that easily understood for people. And when I was writing the book, you know, in the beginning, I was toning down the vernacular and toning it down and toning it down. And I really wanted to find this voice, this particular voice, because I thought I want this to be the same as if I'm sitting in the room with parents. So if a parent is picking up this book, if a teacher is picking up this book, if a professional is picking up this book, doesn't matter who's picking up this book. I want this to feel like it's a comfortable conversation. That this is something that can be digested, that it makes sense to them. There was a certain order to it and kind of how I laid it out for what I really wanted people to understand. But the key of this is it had to be understandable to the average parent who's struggling and has enough on their plate. They don't need to go get a dictionary to try and figure out what I'm saying to them. I want it to just be a story that they can resonate with and that they can hear what this is and to then give them the tools and techniques and offer suggestions, but then insight perhaps into what maybe they haven't considered or haven't heard about Mm -hmm. is this other aspect of understanding the root cause, in my opinion, of what's happening with ADHD for a large portion of the children in this country and really around the world.
1: Yes, I'm going to give you an opportunity right now to prove the way you break something down. We only have a minute or two before the, the our commercial break. <laughs> but explain to me, to where I understand it, and all of our listening audience, what is, because we all heard it, ADHD? What is it?
2: Well, I'll give you my version of it. Okay. Because what I have come to understand is that label's virtually meaningless. Um, that diagnosis, when it was retooled in the latest DSM-5. Almost anyone on the planet can qualify for that diagnostic label, and it doesn't tell us anything about what's happening. You can have 10 children walk into my clinic, and they're all 10 going to be quite different. So when I have this assessment that I uh, came across, uh, we've been using it for 15 years. It takes 20 minutes. It's computer-based. We're looking at 37 areas of auditory and visual processing, and in 20 minutes... I can figure out what part of the brain of that child's brain is working well and what part isn't. And so auditory and visual processing problems can be processing speed. It can be stamina, can be comprehension. It can be the ability to attend. It can be inconsistency. There's a whole host across those 37 areas. And that's kind of why every child is a little bit unique, which is why these one size fits all um, approaches will not solve the problem. It won't solve the problem because we don't know what we're dealing with. With that, we have to get to the actual person. And I think of these assessments almost as like their little thumbprint. It's like this is what the thumbprint is of this little child or this adult and how their brain is working. It's a nice little graph and it's a 15 page report, and we delve into it. <coughs> and I, pardon me, <coughs> and I can say that so many times. I'm with the parents, the clinicians working with the child, I bring the report in, I sit down, I start going through the report, and it is mimicking almost verbatim some of the language the parents have been sharing with me. And at times they look at me like I maybe (laughs) was recording them or something, but it's like, no, we weren't, this is just, this is what this assessment can do, and it can help us understand your child in ways that you haven't ever been able to before.
1: Unbelievable. I'll tell you what, we're gonna take a commercial break. Um, on the other side of this break, doctor, I, I want to find out what uh, this assessment's all about. I wanna go into depth into that. And then I wanna also find out if you feel that trauma uh, that has happened to a child that is unknown to the parent can present itself as a potential ADHD diagnosis. When really in reality, it's because they experience trauma. And I want to know what your thoughts are about that. Eight 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 six two seven six zero zero eight. You won't want to miss this last uh, segment. Be right back after this very short commercial break, about 102 seconds. We'll be right back.
0: HCI Publishing that brought you the international bestsellers, A Child Called It, and the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. Comes the latest book by Dr. Gregory Williams, Shattered by the Darkness. This book describes the horrific abuse that Dr. Williams suffered at the hands of his father for over 12 years and the damaging effect of keeping everything silent. About that abuse for 30 years. If you're looking for that book that you can't put down, then pick up a copy of "Shattered by the Darkness" by Dr. Gregory Williams. At all Barnes and Noble stores, Amazon, and Books a Million. Now, back to breaking the silence with Dr. Gregory Williams.
1: Welcome back. Um, 888-627-6008 If you want to call in, if you have a, a question or a comment, uh, any parents, any professionals, we have a lot of teachers that listen to our program because I do uh, speak at a lot of schools uh, around the country. So uh, they may, because I, I want to eventually when we, you know, on this last side uh, of the uh, interview, Doctor, I want to find out how can school teachers better adapt. Uh, their classrooms for children that that need uh, special attention like this. Do you, um, do you believe that um, the ADHD medicine that they've given out in the past and still probably currently doing, is really doing it, or do you feel that it is just this Band-Aid on a shotgun wound that will never stop the bleeding, and it's just covering up the, the overall uh, issue, and it never gets down to the root of it.
2: Well, I can only speak for I my experience in my yeah. clinics, uh, which is parents are the ones coming in telling the stories to me. And so they're the ones saying, we've been down this path. We've tried every medication. Uh, it works for a little bit. It stops working. Or like what your experience was, the side effects. Uh, were significant enough that they didn't feel comfortable with it. Uh, and then the research in my book actually um, cites a lot of research on this. So anything that I've spoken about in the book is referenced, in <laughs> the reference section. Yes. So people can go to those original articles and read for themselves if they want to do the deep dive into these topics And the research is out there that speaks to the fact that children who've been on the medication sometimes for years, when they go off, their symptoms are virtually the same as the child who never took the medication. So in my mind and where I've come from, that's what I was kind of driving at when I was talking about treating the symptoms or treating the behaviors. because We can treat those, but if we're never getting to the root cause, We're not really getting to a state of wellness or wholeness that I think most people are are really searching for. They really want to get past the diagnostic label and to get to a position of health and well-being. And that is really what this is about.
1: We have a caller, uh, Bobby from California. Uh, Doctors, (laughs) are all right to bring Bobby on? Absolutely. Okay, TJ, go ahead and patch uh, Bobby on in and we'll just listen straight to the caller right now.
2: How are you, Bobby? Uh, I'm very well. Uh, Dr. McGrenald, I had a question for you that all the time that we have been studying ADHD, we just read about three symptoms inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity. And you have this very
1: new approach of
2: uh, identifying the audiovisual processing. So, could you broaden a little more on how do you actually? Uh, address this issue? I'd be happy to. Thank you for your question. I think a lot of people probably have that question. Uh, So uh, the assessment that I was talking about, I I wish I could take credit for developing it. I could just get credit for using it. (laughs) So it's called an integrated auditory and visual processing. It's a continuous performance test, but it's a little bit different than some of the other ones that have been out there, and it's been researched, and has uh, studied, and so it has good validity and reliability to it. And I talk a lot about it in my book about using that. And so what I came to discover, it was really developed to kind of identify ADHD, as I started using it, and we've used it for 15 years. So I can tell you I've read thousands of these assessments, and I started realizing, you know, we've got this all backwards. We have this backwards. We really have to start looking at what is underneath all of this. And when we look at these 37 areas of auditory and visual processing, and one of those is fine motor hyperactivity, Mm -hmm. uh, we can really dial in. It's like suddenly having the correct microscope to look at the situation. Instead of having this broad base to look at something that is so... um, you know, <laughs> at the 30,000-foot 30, 30, level, <clears throat> pardon my voice, uh, we're, we're delving into, we're really getting into the base of what I think is happening. And what I have found consistently across about 85 to 90% of the people, children and adults, who come into my clinics regardless of what brought them in the door, they actually have some auditory and visual processing problems underneath all of that. And to Dr. Williams' question about trauma, yes, we can have diagnoses of all sorts. And the good news with the neurofeedback in the program that we use is that we tackle whatever that is, pretty much. Uh, So, Bobby, I hope I answered your question. If not, please let me know if I need to go a little deeper for you.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Uh, That approach is unique. Thank you. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you for the phone call. Appreciate your participation tonight. Uh, what are some of the signs, doctor, that a child is struggling with the auditory and, and visual processing problems, uh, even if they haven't been? Just what, what's some of those uh, signs that they're having some difficulty?
2: Well, I'll break it into the two camps because we often don't talk about these two camps. We all yes. we think ADHD is just the little guy who's running around with the motor and can't sit still or is fidgety. Uh, And I saw a lot of those kiddos in my mother's classroom (laughs) when I was growing up in second grade. I will say, though, there are a lot more of them in the second grade classroom now than there were. And there's probably some theories behind all of that. And some of it's just better awareness, I think. But I think there's a lot else, a lot of other things going on contributing to that. And so really, if we think about it, I'd like to start with visual because it's kind of different from what we typically are thinking about. And so for visual processing problems, Maybe we have a child who has really messy handwriting. So maybe the letters are malformed, they're misformed, they're maybe missing letters. Maybe they can't copy information very well from the whiteboard down onto the paper. Maybe their room looks like an explosion went off all the time. Nothing ever seems to get organized in the right place. Can't find the backpack, can't find the shoe, can't find the keys, can't find the homework. Did the homework, don't know what happened to it, it disappeared. Look inside the backpack, it's a train wreck in there. I've heard all the stories. This is also the child that could be tripping and falling and bumping into things. Now, it's important that you might want to check the visual processing, the actual eyes, but what I'm talking about is something different from that. But you always want, if you haven't done an eye exam on your child, you may want to just to rule that out if they're bumping into things. Uh, But at the same time, this is something quite different from that. And the auditory processing isn't about hearing, although it's always good, of course, to get the hearing checked to make sure you rule that out. But for auditory processing, this can be as it's a common example. We repeat ourselves a hundred times and Johnny still won't follow through. We ask him to do three or four things. And on the way to do the first one, he's over playing with the dog and never makes it down the hallway. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard those stories or just drifting off. How many times have we heard, well, he's inattentive. He isn't paying attention. It's like, well, here's here's the news break, folks. If a child has auditory processing problems and part of that processing problem is that this child cannot remember what you are saying, Because that part of the brain is a little bit like a piece of Teflon in there. It's just going in one ear and straight out the other. How many times have we heard that saying happen? Well, there's some truth to that, actually. Because if a child has some vigilance difficulties, focus difficulties with auditory processing, it isn't sticking. And it does not matter how many times you say something to this child. If this child cannot hang on to it, This is not willful bad behavior, folks. Punishment isn't going to do a thing for this child. It isn't going to help. If you've taken every toy or electronic away and these behaviors aren't improving, you may be dealing with something else. You might be dealing with these auditory and visual processing problems because this is where the wrong diagnosis doesn't lead to the right intervention. So if you don't know what you're dealing with, you're not going to be able to tackle this very well.
1: That's huge. It's That's huge. huge. It is. So, tell me then, what is the neurofeedback? How does that process? How does that in the in the, in the example you just used with the Teflon auditory and it sliding right on through? You uh, know, mm-hmm. one ear and out the other one. <laughs> how does the neurofeedback work to get that? To where it'll stick, and <laughs> things, will, things will start working again in, in the proper manner. How and how long does that take? Typically, mm-hmm. I know there's no typical, probably in this, but
2: <laughs> well, yeah, there's not, but there's some averages, you know, kind of the bell curve process. There is some yeah. of that in there. Well, neurofeedback, and so I'll choose the other word too. It's called EEG biofeedback because most people have heard of the term biofeedback. And yep. so biofeedback, you know, you put the sensor on your finger and it's measuring your pulse or maybe we're measuring your respiration. So biofeedback means biological feedback. You're getting feedback about the biology of your brain and how it's working. Neurofeedback has to do with the brain waves and the brain. And so EEG biofeedback, which is encephalogram, (laughs) electroencephalogram, that's why we call it EEG. It's a lot easier (laughs) than that
1: word.
2: It's EEG biofeedback. So we actually use a sensor. So the truth about neurofeedback, true neurofeedback, does not administer anything to the brain. So this isn't the old shock therapy. This isn't, you know, there are some some, some systems out there that actually administer some stimulation to the brain. Within the field, there's been some debate about whether or not that really qualifies as neurofeedback. Because neurofeedback is the same concept of biofeedback, which is just feedback regarding how something's working. And with neurofeedback, we use these little sensors that go on the scalp and it's actually measuring brain waves, feeds that into the computer so that you may have some bars going up and down about certain brain waves. Um, the key with this is it's going through an algorithm. So we use low impact, scientifically designed video games for the training plan based on the findings of the assessment. And so if a child has some auditory attention problems, meaning maybe they can't remember, maybe they have slower processing speed, maybe they don't have the stamina to get to the end of a task or what you're saying, then through repetition. So let's think about how we have learned how to do everything we've ever learned how to do. It's through repetition. That's how the brain learns. And that's the beauty of the term neuroplasticity which actually Dr. Donald Heave introduced to us in 1949. Yes, 49. (laughs) That term, it's taken this long for us to really start figuring out how to implement that in an organized way. And so this is like a training plan. It's like a gym for your brain. So you go to the gym. You maybe have, you know, a trainer does a little assessment to figure out what your training plan is and and what machines you need to go on and how you want to strengthen your muscles. It's the same concept with this. We figure out which neuronal pathways need to be strengthened and through the use of creating the training plan and a child doing this or an adult two or three times a week, usually for 30 minutes. We do 10 hours of that training, and then we come back and we rerun these assessments because we're looking for progress toward the goals that were identified in the intake, which are based on the data and based on my intake with them of understanding their daily life. You know What's working? What isn't working? Where are the stressors? Where is the impact? And we're looking for that data as well because you can pass a test but it doesn't necessarily mean your life has changed for the better. And so the key with this is that we're also looking for that data from the parent or from the child. And what I'll share (laughs) early on, we had one little boy, he was about eight or nine. He'd been coming a little while. He'd had a quote attention problem. And so we identified what was going on with him and he walked in one day, kind of a long face and his parents were behind him and, and I said, well, hi, what's going on? He just looked at me, and he said, well, he said, it's working. I can pay <laughs> attention now even when I don't want to.
1: <laughs> so when you mentioned uh, neuroplasticity, does that give us an indication that parents should hold on to the hope that the brain is such an awesome organ <laughs> that in this type of uh exercise program mentally, that it can actually strengthen up, heal, fix, realign, reconnect things that may not have been originally connected?
2: Yes. (laughs) Yes. That is the message that I really want to cover the globe with, which is, yes, there's hope. Yes, we can take care of this in so many instances. Now, is this 100% perfect for every single person on the planet? Well, I haven't worked with every single person on the planet. I can't speak to that. I can speak to the people we have worked with. And for those folks with consistency of participation and diligence and being there and and working, you're going to work your brain while you're with us. But with that diligence and the fact that we have these evidence-based assessments that we're running and we're collecting data as we go along for how is this child or this adult changing in their day-to-day life, we have measurable data then for the results, the outcomes that come out of this. And the brain is an amazingly plastic, meaning malleable instrument. It's the most advanced system on the planet. I don't care what kind of quantum computer you might build. You can't touch a brain. You you can't touch what our brain can do. You can't. It's just fantastic what we're capable of doing. And this is the beauty of all of this. We have children that when I run this assessment, they actually can't even score on the auditory or the visual processing at all. This is how lacking in these processing skills some of these children have. And so we're oh. starting at ground zero with some of these children. It's going to take some time for a child. Good. If we're actually building those pathways, it's going to take time. Other children already have it. They just need to be strengthened. So that's going to be a different time timeframe. Right. Generally, 20 hours is kind of the industry standard. I've seen some children get done and adults get done sooner. I've seen them take a lot longer just depending on how the brain responds and how far down the road do we need to go to get this person to what their goal is.
1: Let me throw a curveball at you. What about a 50-year-old that has gone through trauma as a child, diagnosed with probably ADHD and OCD and all those different things throughout their childhood and even early adulthood, Can neurofeedback processing and this type of work in this book and your assessment and this type of work help someone that still has issues at a 50-year-old age adult?
2: Yes. I work with people in their 80s and 90s. So I have a unit that recently I put into a retirement center, and we're working with some folks in their 90s. Uh, My youngest has been three. He was an advanced three-year-old because he could sit at the computer and he knew how to use a mouse. I had a man who was 91 years old that we had to teach how to use the mouse, but we did, and he was able to improve that. We reversed early onset dementia in an 82-year-old woman two or three years ago that was independently confirmed by her physician. I didn't know that he had her at the border of dementia. Her son brought her in and I did our assessments. It wasn't a neuropsych assessment. I did some memory tests on her and we looked at that and said, well, yeah, I think we can improve this. And so we set about doing that. And then six months after all of that happened, she went back to her doctor and she came in one day with a big smile on her face (laughs) and she and her son was there. And it's like, what's up? (laughs) What's going on here? And she had just been to her physician, and her physician tested her, uh, gave her the same assessment that he'd given her six months earlier. And he looked at her, and he said, ask her, okay, what have you been doing? And she said, what do you mean? He said, what have you been doing? She said, uh, well, I've been, why? I've, I've been doing neurofeedback. And he said, well, keep it up, because whatever you've been doing, you've reversed this. I was prepared to tell you that you were in moving into dementia, and you've improved your scores here, several points on this, and that is not the case anymore. I didn't know that she was at that verge, because that's I wasn't assessing her for that. You know, the son said she had some memory problems. We found it. We tackled it. So I didn't know that, and the doctor didn't know she was coming to me. So it was an amazing story uh, that we were able to do that. And with trauma, uh, I just want to speak to trauma very specifically, because I worked, I used to work at the VA in Madison, Wisconsin, when I was getting my doctorate there, and I worked in the Chemical Dependency Treatment Center, and I worked and ran the anger management groups of court-ordered veterans who were there because of anger management, severe problems the court had sent them. And I wish I'd had this then. We could do a lot of good, but it took a long time in working with that. And I was very fortunate several years back that one of the county VA's here in Southern California took an interest in this work and funded a project for us to be able to provide the neurofeedback services to, I think we ended up serving something like 30 veterans on that project. And I ended up writing and publishing on it because we had good outcomes with that. we dial down that amygdala system. So this system in treating auditory and visual processing, we also can tackle anxiety and anything on that spectrum. And yeah. And so what we're able to do is, is in essence, we help calm down the amygdala system. So the amygdala system is the fight, flight, freeze system in the brain and i will tell you that coming out from the pandemic you know for two or three years we've had a lot of uptick with anxiety and just trauma that people that came out of that children that were traumatized uh, in that process so we've been treating a lot of that in the clinics as well and it's the same process and i'm still assessing for auditory and visual because underneath it eight or nine times out of 10, we're going to find that there are also these other things going on and we just tag it together. We just dovetail that all together and do it all at once so that we are tackling the anxiety, but we're also tackling any of the auditory and visual processing problems. And again, it depends on kind of how the brain's responding, but we're able to make good headway with this. I just heard from one of our veterans' wives today uh, she was telling me, she says, well, things are so good that I'm sending my parents and I'm sending my sister-in-law and my niece to you.
1: <laughs> Unbelievable.
2: Mm-hmm. So, well, Doctor,
1: we are completely completely out of time. Hold your book up <laughs> one more time. I want everybody to get this. This is for children, adults, parents, grandparents. Everybody's going to benefit from this book, Solving the ADHD Riddle by Dr. Connie McReynolds. is amazon the best way to get this doctor
2: it is Man. you can get it on my website which is at www connie mcreynolds my name just spelled out there's a link you can go right to amazon with that or just go straight to amazon and it's listed there as well
1: fantastic thank you for being with us doctor i appreciate it so much want to have you back if you would come back
2: I would love to. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Fantastic. Sorry we got a rush, but it was great information. I knew we was going to not get to half the questions I had from reading the book. (laughs) Get this book, folks. You will not be disappointed. I promise you. As we end every program, I always want to just let you know, no matter what, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what problems that you don't think you'll be able to overcome, there's people out there that have the expertise that have been given a, a different sense of, of knowledge that we just need to simply tap into buy it uh buy the book get the information because no matter what folks i want to promise you tonight there's always hope and this book offers that for those parents that may be at the end of their rope get this book solving the adhd riddle thank you doctor appreciate it join us next week right here for another edition of Breaking the Silence from the most awesome city in the world, live from Houston, Texas. God bless. Have an awesome week. Good
0: night. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. To contact Dr. Williams, dial 832 832- three nine six six five two five or email him at shattered by the darkness at gmail.com and don't forget to join us each sunday night at 8 p.m central time 6 p.m pacific on bbs radio station one for the next episode of breaking the silence